in a few moments, we are going to um, receive Holy Communion together. Um, you've noticed in all the songs that were picked for this morning, begin to point us toward the cross and the blood and who we are in Christ. I'm so grateful for the ancient hymns of the church that are didactic in nature. They, they teach us, they remind us of what this whole thing is about and anchor us to the reality of, of, of the cross and what took place. We remember the cost. We remember the cost. Now, we'll tell you as we get ready to receive communion, we're going to do it a little bit differently, so I want to prepare you now for that. We are going to pass before you the elements. There is going to be a broken piece of bread and also an actual grape. So don't freak out when you see a grape. But there's going to be a grape and a broken piece of bread to symbolically enhance. Well, I believe the Lord is leading us as we reflect back on the body of Jesus, right, that was broken and crushed for us as we remember that. When we talk about communion, communion is meant to be a deeply personal experience. It's not meant to get lost in the traditions of man and hollow religion. I'm okay with traditions of man and religion to some degree as long as it speaks to and furthers the deeply personal nature of what happens to us when we receive from the Lord's table. Communion is meant to reflect that. I have come to believe in my life that my understanding of salvation was grossly limited for the majority of it up until three years ago. Many of us, when we receive communion, we reflect back upon the, on the cross and we can see Jesus hanging on the cross and we can get our minds wrapped around. We are forgiven. We are saved from hell. But sometimes in that message, we don't complete the story. It's not just about being saved from something. It's being saved to something. As wonderful as forgiveness is, there's actually more. As Paul Harvey would say, there is the rest of the story on page two that we oftentimes don't meditate enough and reflect upon. So this morning as we begin to prepare our hearts and, and our minds, I want to take you to Psalm 96, one simple verse this morning. And I pray for all of us that there would be a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation of this incredible thing called salvation and what it means and who we now are. Psalm 96 and verse 9. I want to share with you on the thought of holy is holy. Holy is holy. I'm going to read the passage and then we're going to pray. Psalm 96, 9. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Can we read that together? It's kind of short. Ready? Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Lord, we just pause for a moment. Lord, before we begin this time together, we humble ourselves. We remind ourselves that we don't know everything. And I pray today, Lord, through the anointing and the sharp, double-edged sword of Scripture, that you would lay waste to any hollow religious thoughts, any traditions of man, any incompleteness in our thoughts or anything that's not of you. Lord, we put it all before you. We ask you, Lord, to deconstruct that which is not accurate to construct 
that which is pure and life-changing. None of us here pretend to have all the answers. But Lord, we thank you for the great Holy Spirit who comes as our teacher, our illuminator, and our guide. Lord, as we are changed from glory to glory to glory. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I love that scripture. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Or the in splendid array, as some versions may say. For many of us, including me, I thought for years to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness had something to do with my behavior. I thought it had something to do with my behavior. That to be worshiping in holiness had to do with how I acted. That to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness meant that I had to keep this list. These things that I don't do and these things that I do do. All right? And if I maintain this list accurately, I would be able to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. But if I faltered in the doing the things that I needed to do, or I was doing some things that I shouldn't have done, then I would not be able to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Therefore, in His presence, I would feel uncomfortable, or perhaps maybe even a little bit of shame. So today I, wanna, I want you to think about a couple of points. There's only... Two points in this message. Now, don't mistake that to mean it's going to be a short message. There's a lot of filler in the middle. All right? I want to give you two quick things, though. Two incorrect views of holiness. An incorrect view of holiness. Because I suspect if I walk this in my Christian life for 25 years, you too may walk this as well. Number one, holiness is hard work. I thought... That holiness was really hard work. That I had to roll my sleeves up and I had to hunker down and I just had to do the do's and don't do the no do's kind of thing. I thought holiness was hard work. But you know what? Holiness is not hard work. I have some good news for you. Holiness is actually a gift that God gives us. It's the whole point of salvation, isn't it? That did you, do you realize the moment you were born again, you were fundamentally changed at the subatomic level? You were changed. Really, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you were changed at that moment. And, and the imputed righteousness, right, that came from Jesus came to you. Now, you are now holy. If you know Christ, turn to your neighbor and say, you're holy. That's hard for us because you, you are likely you likely know the person next to you and you know they're not really holy because you live with them. But in reality, you are very much holy. So to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, you are worshiping Him in the beauty of that which He has given you, not that something you had attained on your own. Now think about that for a second because the implications are rather shocking. I have come to the conclusion that many of us have are are Christians, but we don't understand our salvation very well. We know the Christianese. We can speak it, right? I've been born again. I've been saved just on the cross. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hell. We can, we, we can get the lingo, but the difficulty is we've never received a revelation from the Holy Spirit of what it means to be born again. We've never done what Psalms 1 instructs us to do to really begin to meditate on God's word day and night. It's through meditating upon scripture and salvation that it begins to take root in our, in our heart. 
to realize this thing called holiness is actually a gift that's been given to you in Christ. Number two, holiness is behavior modification. Another incorrect view of holiness. You see, religion itself seeks to equate holiness with behavior modification. You see, that's what, it, I mean, when you modify your behavior, you change. You, you, all right, here's a list of things I'm supposed to do. Here's a list of things I'm not supposed to do. And if I can manage these two lists, then I'm going to be okay and I'm going to be holy. Religion operates off of that premise. What happens to Christianity and what happened to the Jewish people over time, they moved from this truth of simplicity to a place of complexity. And that's what happens. Things go from being simple to being complex. Jesus came on the scene, and Jesus was never afraid of religion. I'm glad he wasn't because he wouldn't have found me because I was in the middle of it. Jesus came right into the middle of religion. He exposed their complexity and returned them back to simplicity. And when you return back to simplicity, it takes the teeth and the leverage that religion has over you and has over me and the, and the traditions of man that has over you and has over me. Why? Because complexity requires religion and traditions of man to maintain it. You see? Once it gets complex, it's beyond you and beyond me to figure out what I should be doing or what I should not be doing. And then I need a religious structure to provide for me what that is. Can I tell you, for most of us who have come up in the church, that is exactly the dinner table we have been eating off of for a very long time. We've been eating that for lunch and dinner. We've been reading in devotionals. We've heard it in sermons. And we have ingested it. That's why the church is so fragmented, because there are wars over the piano placement on the platform. There's a lady that once left our church because we painted a wall black because she said that was the devil's color. You know the irony of it? She was wearing a black dress on that day. <laughs> so you see the lunacy of that way of thinking. But Jesus says, no, you've made this way too complex. I'm going to get this back to simplicity because that's how religion operates. And it's a very seductive kind of thing because it looks so right. But it's very pharisaical. So when you think about religion, where am I going to find religion in the New Testament? How can I expose it in my own life? Well, you got to kind of put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees, the religious people of the day. Remember the Pharisees, right? These are the good guys. They really were. They would be, like we've, we've talked in the past, they would be part of, they were part of the right-wing conservative branch in this country. They'd be, that's who they were. But yet Jesus dealt with them the most harshly. Because what did the Pharisees do? Pharisees would put heavy burdens on people. Listen to this in Matthew 23, 4. This is what the Pharisees would do. They tied up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. I just said that many of us have come through enough religion in our lives that we allow these heavy loads to be put upon us. And so for some of us, we have carried them for so long, we actually feel like they're part of us now, but they are not part of you. It's a very unhealthy thing that religion does. I remember around 2010 going through 
a difficult season of life, maybe even before 2010, maybe in like 2008, going through a very, very difficult season. I, and, I, and I had this spot develop on my back right here. And it really hurt. What's going on? It itched and, and, it, would, and it wouldn't get better. So I said, well, I better, I better go to the doctor. So I went to the doctor and, and he looked at it and said, you have shingles. I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm in my 30s. My grandmother got shingles in her 70s. I said, so what's, what's up with that? And he looked at me and said, the reason you're getting shingles at your age is because of something called stress. Stress brought this about. And the Lord kind of brought me face to face. Well, why am I so stressed? I'm serving you, Jesus. But in that moment, I began to reflect back. And as I look back on now, I realized the reason I got the shingles, the cause of the stress, was because of the expectations of others that were placed upon me. And even more insidious were the expectations that I put on myself. And I was literally running myself crazy, operating off of these things that the Pharisees, heavy burdens and heavy loads that are strapped upon you. Can I just offer to all of us, perhaps even this morning, you are living your Christian life with some of that on you right now. There's actually some expectations of others that's been placed upon you that's not from God and that you're operating and you are crafting your life around those. Are there some expectations you have placed upon yourself that are equally not from God and it's driving a lot of what you do and you're worn out and you're miserable? I found myself at that place. And this is the preacher, all right? It wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was just trying to herd sheep. Lord, can't you honor that? And And I reached the end of myself. In that moment. Therefore, if, this, if we're to worship God in the beauty of holiness, what is this holiness we are called to? If it's not behavioral, if it's not connected to what I do, then, then what is it? What is it? That's a good question to ask. But let's, I think we need to back up and even ask ourselves a more important question before we even get to that question. What does God want? What does God want? Ever thought about that? Many of us spend a lot of time asking us, God, what do you want? What does God really want? What's God after in this whole thing? What started in the Garden of Eden as God was walking with Adam in the cool of the day and in Revelation 22 when we find ourselves at the same tree of life? What does God want? It's not complicated. Jesus cuts through the complexity. And you know what God wants? He wants you. He wants you. So to be holy, H-O-L-Y, is to be W-H-O-L-L-Y, His. To be holy, H-O-L-Y, is to be W-H-O-L-L-Y, His. That is what God is after. He wants you. He has given us His holiness so we can be W-H-O-L-L-Y, His. He did not give us his holiness to modify our behavior. He gave us his holiness to give us relationship with him. Isn't that powerful? He said, I don't know if I really believe that. Well, you need to. 
and change your life. Let me give you an example. Is it possible, for those of you that are married, if you're not married, you can shut your ears for a second. Is it possible to be married with intimacy? Is it possible to be married with intimacy? Is it? Yes. Is it possible to be married without intimacy? Yes. <laughs> it's possible to marry with, yes, and yes to both questions. So it was the fall of 2014, October. Some of you have heard this story in different settings, but it's worth repeating here because this is deeply personal for me. I've often said, if I don't preach any of the message the rest of my life, I'm just going to preach this one over and over and over again. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, until he preached the message a thousand times, it didn't get good. All right. October 2014, on vacation, on a cruise ship, sitting on deck early in the morning. I had reached the end. It had been four years since shingles. Still hadn't learned much. Sitting out there. And I'm just, Lord, I just, I need something from you. So I did the great form of systematic Bible study that you're not supposed to do. You just flip your Bible open. Speak to me, God. So grateful I didn't end up on the maps or concordance book. But in God's amazing grace, I opened the Bible to the book of John chapter 6. And I began reading. And this is the passage where Jesus says a lot that you're going to be familiar with. Where he says, I'm the lie of the world. I'm the bread of life. It's the, it's the, it's the I am chapter. And my eyes got to... John 6, 28, and I want to show you this verse because it's, this is a pivotal event in my life coming up on the third anniversary of that in October. John 6, 28, then they asked him, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, what must we do to do the works God required? And I stopped right there. I did not read another word. And I said, yes, Lord, that's exactly what I want to know. What do you want me to do that I can do your works? What do, you, what do you require? Have you ever prayed that prayer before? Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? In fact, I dare say many of our prayers orbit around the scope of that question. What do you want me to do? What? And I said, Lord, that's all I'm asking for. I've been serving you since I was 12 years old. What do you want me to do? Why am I so dissatisfied? Why am I so empty? Listen, I'm the Pentecostal preacher. I should have rivers of life flowing out of my belly all the time. Happens to all of us. Lord, why am I so dried up? And now look at the response of Jesus. And this is where the Holy Spirit arrested me in this moment. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, I'm sitting there and I'm reading that. And I've had a few moments in my life, probably only moments I can count on one hand, that my entire life turned on a dime. When the wisdom and revelation of the Holy Spirit begins to move. And it began to dawn on me in that moment that I was asking a doing question and Jesus responds with a being answer. Listen, this is so important, guys. If I could give you this, I'd force feed this to you if I could. I was asking a doing question, and Jesus responded with a being answer. You see, the issue is not with our doing, it's not with our behavior, but the difficulty is what we are believing. 
and why we believe it. We keep trying to settle the doing question, and God keeps trying to settle the being question. I think a lot of frustration in our Christian life originates out of this, what we perceive to be a complicated conundrum. We're trying to resolve the doing question, and God say, no, we really haven't solved the being question yet. Take another lap around Mount Sinai till you learn your lesson, till you stop your crying, you quit your rebelling, right? Take another lap, take another lap. Because that's the question that the Lord is endeavoring to get at in all of our hearts. It's not in the doing, it's in the being. This has been the systematic struggle through all of the great men and women of God throughout biblical history and biblical narrative and 2,000 years of Christian history of those coming into this understanding. We see this example played out in a number of places in Scripture. One that's the nearest and dearest to my heart is the story of Gideon. We see this played out in the life of Gideon. I'm not going to give you the whole story, but you remember little Gideon. He's in the wine press, hiding. The Midianites have pretty much taken over the land of Israel. So he's hiding out. This angel of God appears before Gideon and says, Valiant warrior. Gideon, can you imagine how he said, excuse me? And the first thing he begins to do is he begins to accuse God. What? How dare you come talk to me? Look what you've done to Israel. God didn't even listen. He said, no, valiant warrior, you shall defeat Midian as one man. And Gideon's like, obviously, you have forgotten who I am. I am from the tribe of Manasseh, which wasn't even a really legitimate tribe per se because it was part of Joseph's tribe. It was like a a half-tribe. I'm just part of the half-tribe, and I'm the youngest in my family. Worst possible position to be in. God says, no, you've forgotten who you are. You see, somewhere along the way, Gideon forgot he was a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. Somewhere along the way, he forgot he was part of the Abrahamic promises. And God said, I have not forgot you, Gideon. Gideon had to come to a place where he recognized he had forgotten who he was. And God called him out of that mess. He began to view himself differently. This truth is embedded for us in the simple message Jesus gave to uncomplicate the message of the Pharisees. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. We read it last week. Jesus comes on the scene and says, "Listen, here's the command. Here's here's what you got to know. Here's what you got to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The last little paraphrase of that love your neighbor, it's the as yourself. It's very interesting to me there. It's kind of like the greatest two and a half commandments. Because there's something really powerful in that as yourself. See, most of us aren't accustomed to the kind of love that's being described here. The kind of love that most of us are used to is a conditional love, a selfish love that's fueled by our own flesh, that's narcissistic and has hedonistic tendencies. It's the phileo love, the eros love, the storhe love that's embodied in select Greek words. But in this particular passage, the Greek word that's used here is agapao, which is 
agape love. This is the divine love. This is the highest form of love. This is the kind of love that is injected into you the moment you are born again. You see, the moment you are born again, you go from being created now to being what? A son and a daughter. Peter says it like this. Now we are partakers of the what? Divine nature. What happens is God then begins to implant his spiritual DNA in you and in me. And what is God's DNA? Love. First John says that God is love. God doesn't just do love. God actually is love. He is the definition of love. He is the chemical equation of love, and he put it inside of you, giving you the capacity to love him and to love others and to love yourself. Again, he gave you his holiness that you can worship him in holiness. He gave you his love that you can love him in that same love that you were never capable of. That God infused inside of you the ability to do that which you could not do alone. So this agape love says this, I can love you, God. I can love others because I can love myself with that kind of love. Many of us struggle with loving God and loving others because we don't love ourselves. Because if we view ourselves through the lens of a son and a daughter who's never measuring up, who is not keeping the list of don't do's and do do's, we're never going to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness because we're never going to measure up. And the message of the Father says, you don't have to measure up. I never wanted you to measure up. You can't measure up. I'm going to give you the very holiness. I'm going to give you my love. I'm going to make it a part of your nature. And it's going to replicate itself inside your heart. And it's going to change you from glory to glory to glory. Even though the outward man is fading away, even though your hair is falling out, even though gravity has taken its toll, there's something inside of you that continues to replicate itself. And that's the love of God that's shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit and it's changing you. But sometimes we trip over this reality because, okay, God, I'm supposed to love you, I'm supposed to love others, but we trip on loving ourselves because we can't get past the shame. We can't get past the condemnation. We can't get back the traditions of man and hollow religion that's been laid upon us by Pharisees we've come into contact with over the years. And sometimes the very worst Pharisee is the one staring back at you in the mirror in the morning. Powerful truth. The love of God pours into us, equipping us to love him and others as we love ourselves as sons and daughters, joint heirs with Jesus. In this place, in this revelation, Right? If faith without works is dead, the, 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 the product of this revelation is you begin to give yourself wholly to him. Galatians 4, 6 through 7. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who is called out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. I love the song we sing no longer. I love the part when it says, his blood flows through my veins. You know what that tells me? 
That means if I log on to Ancestry.com, the only thing I'm going to find above me is God. Hallelujah. I'm not going to waste my $30 because I know who I am. All that other stuff is irrelevant. I'm him. I got new blood flowing through my veins. I'm not an ancestor of the first Adam anymore. I have entered into the life of Jesus. And so no longer do I work for him as for a wage, but I work with him out of a shared desire and dream. It changes everything about our Christian life. Three years ago this October, my life turned on a dime when this revelation burned into my spirit. And it was quiet. It was still. I wasn't on the floor flopping around and doing a Jericho march around the cruise ship. Not that it's bad, but it was, you know what it was? It was over a lukewarm cup of cruise coffee sitting on the deck and nobody else around. That the Lord did something in my heart that completely, completely, my wife can completely take this guy who lived under the expectation of others and self, who lived in the fear of man, that governed my life. But the Lord, in a moment, changed that for me. And I pray we all can have that. And as we get ready to land, I'm just, I, I want to, in no way, I don't want anybody leaving here that I'm saying to give a free pass to sin. All right? Because you can hear this amazing grace message and think, oh, I can go out and do whatever I want to do. Listen. In no way do we give a free pass to sin. Sin has very real and significant consequences, doesn't it? I may not be a sinner anymore, but I can sure sin. So let me frame it this way for us. How would it work in your marriage if you were not W-H-O-L-L-Y, your spouses? Would that work well? If you were in your marriage and you were not wholly your spouses and she was wholly yours, that wouldn't work so well, would it? Poor choices affect intimacy, not status. Poor choices will affect intimacy, but it will never affect status. You can still be married with intimacy. You can be married without intimacy. That's where sin comes into play. Sin damages our intimacy. Larry, how would you feel if you had an employee that worked for McDonald's by day and Burger King by night? Just, yeah, Larry owns some McDonald's and manages McDonald's. No, because if you're going to work for McDonald's, you're not going to sneak off over there to Burger King and eat their onion rings. Loyalty, right? There are, there are consequences for that. We study out the life of Solomon and we find out very quickly what happens with divided loyalties and what put in place in his life because he was not holy God's. There were consequences of that. You can study the life of David. Intimacy was restored, but there were long-term consequences to his sin. We never want to trifle. We never want to trifle with sin. We're getting ready to take of the Lord's table, like the worship team, to come on up and as we prepare our hearts for that. In a moment, we're going to invite the kids from the rock to come in. If you have a child from third grade and up, they're going to come and join you here in the sanctuary. In a moment, I will cue you in to look behind you, to be looking for them. Being holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, right, is, that's, that's the freedom that we get. When we're holy 
his, we get an amazing amount of freedom. I used to think freedom existed because how much could I get under my umbrella, right? How much, how much things can I get under it? Get a bigger umbrella to hold more stuff, right? Things that are under my umbrella. You know what? That will, to- that will totally wear you out. You know where freedom is? True freedom being wholly his is you get free from the illusion of control. Because you can't control anything. In fact, real freedom comes from not getting a bigger umbrella or more under it is to let go of the umbrella. Just to, just to let go of it. True peace and rest is not enlarging your umbrella to contain more stuff, but it's ultimately in letting the umbrella go. Because in Jesus, in this place of communion, all of our needs for security, significance, and contentment are met. And then we end up like Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, in possessing nothing, I possess everything. Because Paul was wholly his. What a simple place to live out of. What a beautiful place to live out of, free from the expectations. Some of you, my heart hurts for you. I look at you, I look at your eyes, some of you, and I know you're walking around with these heavy loads and you think that God actually put them there when his burden is easy and his yoke is light. I pray for you. Maybe it's going to require a cruise to the Caribbean. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, meditate upon these truths long enough for the revelation of who you are in Jesus because it will bring more peace, bring more joy and more love than my first 24 years of serving Jesus ever brought me, that the last three years has brought me. No more shingles, no more unnecessary stress, no more striving, no more laborious work. Just it's fun to serve Jesus because he's my dad and I'm his son and he loves me. Amen. If you would, take a moment, look behind you. If one of those beautiful arrows are yours, welcome them to where you're sitting. Come on in, guys. We welcome you. Find your, find your mom, your dad, grandparents, guardians, guardian angels, whatever they are. Just come on in. Everybody find their kids. So we're going to do communion a little differently this morning. We're going to have you remain in your seat. As far as your children go or those that you're responsible for, it's up to you whether or not you believe that they're ready to receive communion or not. Maybe this is the time you can have a little conversation with them. We'll leave it up to you as mom and dads to make that decision. But they're welcome to receive when the elements are passed out. I'd like to invite the ushers to come down. And if you could, come on down front, guys, all the way to the front. Our elders come this way. We're going to pray. And then they're going to serve you communion. Again, it's going to look a little different than you're used to. But I want you to take a piece of the broken bread and take one grape. And I want you to hold it. I want you to hold it in your hand. 
for a few moments and we will receive the elements together. Before they pass it out, I want to read to you something from Isaiah chapter 53. Describing our Savior. It says, He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised, and we did not esteem Him. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to all on Him. Father, Your Word teaches us as we come to the Lord's table, it's your heart that each one would examine himself. And I pray, Lord, as this broken bread is passed out and we hold it in our hand in just a moment, that we'll look at it and we will realize that your body was broken was broken for us. That Lord, when we look at the grape symbolically, that when we put it between our teeth and we crush the grape and the juice fills our mouth, it would remind us that your body was crushed and bled for us. That we would remember the price that you paid to give us your holiness and your righteousness. Because you want me, you want us. Not our behavior, you want us. And that, Lord, in this very special moment, may the spirit of wisdom and revelation enlighten our hearts to this truth and anchor us to that reality and free us from all traditions of man, all religion, all expectations from others or from self that has never come from you, Lord. Love you, God.